You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord Good morning. Good to be with you today. Glad to be here with you who are here in person with us and those of you who are with us online. I know some of you have been online with us for a year and a half, and God bless you. We're so glad you're able to connect in this way, and we just pray for the day when we'll all be able uh, to be back together uh, safely and, and without fear. We've been working through the book of Acts in the New Testament, and we are coming toward the end of Acts. Today we're in chapter 24. To understand 24, you have to understand what happens in chapters 21 to 23. Starting in about chapter 21, Luke takes us on a journey with Paul as he is uh, accused, arrested, held in prison for quite a long time, at least uh, four years. And uh, that takes us up through the end of the Bible's book of, of Acts. We'll take a couple more lessons uh, from Acts uh, after this one today, and then we'll move on uh, to another series today, chapter 24. So in chapters 21 to 23, at the end of his third of three missionary journeys, not counting his journey to Rome, in which case, in, in, at which time he's a prisoner, not a free missionary, able to move around. At the end of his third journey, Paul travels to Jerusalem to bring money donated by a group of Gentile churches to the poor in the Jewish church in Jerusalem. While he's there in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple to worship God, and something happens. Some Jews who have encountered Paul during his missionary work in the province of Asia, which is now western Turkey, uh, possibly in the city of Ephesus, the biggest city in that region, they see him there in the temple. And they don't like him much because, A, he teaches people to follow Jesus, and they don't agree with that, and B, he teaches Gentiles to follow Jesus, and they definitely don't agree with that. They don't want non-Jews being involved in Judaism without converting fully to Judaism. They don't think this is right. So they stir up a crowd, and they get Paul arrested right there at the temple in Jerusalem because they're claiming he has defiled the temple by bringing Gentiles into it, which he has not. The Roman commander who comes and arrests Paul to quiet the, the, the crowd and keep them from you know, continuing to riot, his name is Lysias. And he brings Paul before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, there in Jerusalem. But they can't agree on what to do with Paul. They're, they have a split decision. They can't decide. He claims he is on trial because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead. And that's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus, his death and, and his resurrection. It's also a reference to the hope that God will raise all the dead one day for judgment and give the faithful eternal life. The next day, some Jews plot to kill Paul, but Paul's nephew hears about the plot and reports it to Lysias, the commander, who immediately sends a detachment of soldiers by night to take Paul to Caesarea along the coast where Paul will be safe and where the Roman governor Felix lives, and there he can judge Paul's case. And so that brings us up to chapter 24, where we pick up Paul's story today. So let's read Acts 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. 
We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. On the surface, Luke is just continuing the story of Paul's trial here, which will, uh, by the end of Acts, lead him and the gospel to the center of the civilized world at that time, which was the great city of Rome. But on a more careful reading, Acts 24 is also the story of two men, not just Paul, but also this Roman governor, Felix. Not Tertullus, the story's not about him. He's a good attorney. He really knows how to butter up the governor, saying things like, your reforms have, have brought about great change in our nation. Well, that wasn't really true. Felix was not known for his reforms. 
Tertullus knows how to throw accusations against Paul with very little evidence and still make it sound like Paul's guilty. But Tertullus, he presents his case and then disappears from the story. It's really Paul and Felix that the writer, Luke, focuses on. From Paul, we get a concise summary of the good news of Jesus, what the gospel is all about, what it is, and how God wants people to respond to it. In Felix, we see the struggle that people often go through when they hear the gospel to decide how they will respond to Jesus. So first, let's, let's look at Paul and listen as he describes the core of the gospel as he presents his case for his innocence before the, the governor. In verse 14, Paul says, I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. The way is a common title for Christianity in the book of Acts. And then he says, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. So Paul begins by saying that the good news of Jesus stands in perfect continuity with the Jewish faith. He believes in the God of his ancestors. He believes in the law and the, and the prophets, the, the Hebrew scriptures. So our roots are Jewish roots, and the law and the prophets are still God's word, even if the law of Moses has been superseded by our covenant with God through Jesus and the blood he shed for us on the cross. In verse 15, Paul says his hope in God is that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So he gets right down to the core of the Christian faith. There will be a resurrection of all the dead, not, not just those who follow Jesus. All will face God's judgment because all will be raised. In verse 16, because of this, Paul strives to always keep his conscience clear before God and man. He's not a troublemaker, as Tertullus claimed that he is. He's just the opposite. He works hard to be ready for the resurrection and the judgment day. In verse 21, Paul says he's on trial for believing in the resurrection of the dead, specifically Jesus' resurrection and everything it means, that salvation now comes to people not through following the law of Moses, but through Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And that as God raised Jesus from the dead, so he will also raise all people, and then the judgment will come. And so Paul blends a message about the gospel and what it is in with his defense of himself. And then later, he has the opportunity to talk with Felix, the governor, and Paul speaks about faith in Jesus Christ. He must have told Felix the story of Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection. And then in verse 25, Paul talks about the implications of faith in Jesus, that we must live in righteousness and self-control and be ready for the judgment to come. Paul's defense speech here, though it's brief, at least as we have it in Acts, is brilliant. He simultaneously defends his innocence. He, he says, I wasn't stirring up trouble in the temple. It's going to be hard for you to find any witnesses of something I didn't do. Uh, the people who should be accusing me aren't even here. He simultaneously defends his innocence and preaches the gospel right there in the court. And he arouses the governor's curiosity enough that Felix wants to hear more about the good news of Jesus. And the good news of Jesus is that the God of the Jews has fulfilled his promise to Israel and to their ancestor Abraham by sending his Messiah, his anointed one, Jesus, to bless the world. Because in Jesus' death and resurrection, we have the hope of our own resurrection from the dead. 
But if there is life after death, then we must be careful how we live today. We must do what is right before God and man and live in righteousness and self-control because there is judgment coming. That's the gospel message in a nutshell. And Paul addresses all the basics right there in his defense speech. And that last part of the gospel message, the part about the judgment coming and righteousness and self-control, that part apparently was difficult for Felix to swallow. Luke says in verse 25 that at that point in the conversation, Felix was afraid and cut off his conversation with Paul. Have you ever known someone who was afraid to talk too much about Jesus, about God, about the coming judgment? Now, Felix. We know a little about Felix from this story and even more from other historical records, especially the Jewish writer uh, Josephus, who wrote at the end of the first century. Marcus Antonius Felix was appointed procurator, basically governor, of the province of Judea by the Roman Emperor Claudius in the year 52 or 53. The records we have outside the Bible about his reign indicate that he was not a good ruler. He was corrupt, clumsy, and sometimes wielded his power too harshly. He had married a Jewish woman named Drusilla. She's mentioned in our text. She was from the family of Herod the Great. That's the king who tried to have Jesus killed when Jesus was just a baby or a toddler. She was first married to a minor king in the region of Syria, but only very briefly because when she was 16, so she was married young, that was common at the time. When she was 16, Felix hired a sorcerer to persuade her to abandon her husband and marry Felix instead with the guarantee that if she did, she would be happy her whole life. And apparently it worked. She did leave her husband. She married Felix instead, and they had a son together. Uh, this was uh, somewhere around the time of, of this story here, probably a little before uh, this story. Unfortunately, in later years, their son and his wife were killed in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius that destroyed Pompeii in the year 79. Now here, it's about the year 57 when Felix encounters Paul. And Felix, as governor of Judea, faces two conflicting pressures. It's not easy being governor, as you, know, as you can imagine. On one hand, as governor of Judea in particular, it would really help his relationship with the leading Jews in the region if he could please them by punishing Paul. They would really appreciate that favor. That would get him more into their good graces. And so in verse 27, it says he keeps Paul in prison because he wants to grant a favor to the Jews. So there's political pressure there. On the other hand, as governor, Felix has a responsibility to uphold justice, especially for Roman citizens like Paul. If he doesn't, the emperor in Rome, his boss, may find out and decide to replace him and could punish him for incompetent governance. And so Felix is stuck between these two opposing pressures, one from underneath his authority and one from above his authority. And not being a man of any real integrity, he stalls. 
The way he resolves this pressure in the moment is he tells Paul in verse 22, when Lysias the commander comes, I will decide your case. So he needs more information before he pronounces judgment. Oh, that seems pretty reasonable. But then for two years, nothing much happens. We get no sense that Felix is doing anything at all to resolve Paul's case. And it's not like he's forgotten about Paul. He sends for Paul and talks with him frequently. In fact, the first time he meets with Paul, his Jewish wife, Drusilla, is uh, with him for the conversation. Luke has already said Felix is well acquainted with the way. He knows about Christianity. But apparently he wants to know more about it. Maybe he and his wife are curious. And so they talk with Paul and he speaks to them about faith in Christ Jesus. But the thing about faith in Jesus is that if you do believe in him, your life has to change. You can't go on living the way you used to. Submitting to the Lordship of Jesus requires us to learn to live in righteousness and self-control so that we prepare ourselves for the judgment to come by pleasing God in the way we live, growing in the image of Jesus. So when Paul talks about these things, Felix is afraid and cuts off the conversation. It's getting too serious. And he meets with Paul frequently after that, but he never commits himself to follow Jesus. Instead, Luke tells us, Felix really is hoping that Paul will offer him a bribe. He's willing to set Paul free for the right price. This is the story of two men. Two men in their relationship with each other. Paul presenting his case, the case for his innocence, before Felix the governor. Felix having to decide what to do with Paul. Figure out how he's going to resolve those conflicting pressures that are against him as governor of Judea. But really, this is a story of two men in their relationship with God. Paul, surprisingly, is 100% sold out for Jesus. I say surprisingly because we remember where he came from, that he used to think Christianity was a fraud, and he aggressively persecuted the church. People died because of him, at least in part. Now he's a prisoner for Christ. And even in prison, he takes every opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. Even the governor needs to hear it, if he's willing to. Felix is curious about Christianity. It's interesting to him. He might even come to believe it's true. We don't know. But when the message of Jesus becomes clear to him, he's afraid. God's judgment is a scary thing. The new life God wants to give us, that life of righteousness and self-control, of keeping our conscience clear before God and man, that's hard. There's nothing easy about it. Felix shies away from all of that. He keeps meeting with Paul, though, so I wonder if there might have been some part of him that really still wanted to follow Jesus, maybe just some part. But then again, he also wants a bribe. So he's not letting God change who he is on the inside. And after two years of this, the new emperor, Nero, removes Felix from office and replaces him for mismanaging his power. 
Specifically, Felix had made the mistake of intervening in a dispute between some Syrians and some Jews by slaughtering the Jews. And when word got to the emperor in Rome, the emperor replaced Felix with his successor, Festus. And so Felix and whatever chance he had to hear the gospel from Paul anymore are suddenly gone. This is the story of two men and how they each respond to the good news of Jesus, how they respond to God. It's an interesting story, but there's something troubling about it too. And what troubles me about this story is that I think there are a lot of Felixes out there in our world today. And I think you and I know some of them. People who, like Felix, are curious about Jesus. They might even believe in Jesus. But they're either too afraid or too caught up in sin to really respond to the gospel. Or some of them have already responded to the gospel. But now they don't grow because they're afraid or because some sin holds on to them. So maybe they're afraid of the gospel's message of the judgment to come. And it's just easier to cut off the conversation than to confront their sin and repent and receive God's forgiveness. Or maybe they're not ready to let go of their sin. Um, For Felix, at least, part of his sin that he held on to was greed It was hard for him to let that go. He wanted Paul to offer him a bribe. He wanted income. For other people, the sin they hold on to could be anything. It could be a spiteful attitude or slander. It could be self-centeredness. It could be a love of pleasure, a lack of self-control. Usually, what keeps us from coming to God is that we just want to stay in control of our own lives. And so we refuse to give up control to God. We want to be in charge, and it terrifies us to not know what might happen if we let God be in control. There are a lot of Felixes out there. I've been privileged to help a lot of people come to follow Jesus over the years, and many of you have too, and I praise God for that, that we've been able to help. But for every person I've been able to help come to Jesus, there have been one or two more who came partway and then backed off. God demanded too much of them, and they didn't want to change. Or the judgment to come was just too scary to think about. I have an acquaintance I'll call uh, Bill. It's not his real name. He believes in Jesus, but two things keep him from following Jesus. One is that he knows that if he did follow Jesus, he would have to change his life. In fact, God would start changing his life. And there's sin in his life that he doesn't want to let go of. And that sin is doing him harm every day. And I see it. And it makes me ache inside. But he just can't let it go. And it's scary to him. The the second thing that keeps him from following Jesus, it's just scary to him. The thought of having to let go of his control and trust God to really renovate who he is as a person. It's just hard to, hard to trust God so much. And if that's you, if you're kind of like Felix, interested in God, but holding back, holding him back from being Lord in your life completely, 
then I want to say to you what I, I would like to say to Felix, if I could sit down with him you know, almost 2,000 years ago. I, I would want you to know how much God loves you so that you'll trust him. God created us all. He created our ancestors. He gave us life, and he gave us life because he, he wanted us to be his children. He genuinely cares about us more than anyone we've ever met, partly because he's capable of caring more than anybody else is capable of, and partly because he's, he's just pure in all his motives and all his desires and in who he is. And so he's capable of loving us more than anyone else. He gave Jesus his son to die for us. And he wants to give us life through the same power by which he brought Jesus back alive from the dead. So John 3, 16, uh, the reason that verse is so important is because it, it just capsulizes, uh, in, in, in capsules, I'm not sure what the word I want is there. It says very briefly uh, exactly that, that God gave Jesus to die for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves us so much. The, the message of God's judgment is scary. I agree with that. But it's, it's meant to warn us, not so that we'll be scared, but so that we'll be motivated to come to God and to grow in Him. And then we'll have nothing to be afraid of when that judgment day comes. And if we could think about our lives like, like cars, when it comes to driving the car of our life, God's just a better driver than we are. We get ourselves into wrecks all the time. We try to be our own God and things don't go well. But if we let God drive, our life gets better. The car of my life only wrecks when I take the steering wheel away from God. God's just a better driver than we are. And He understands what we need better than we do. And He is very, very good. We can trust Him. If you're like Felix, curious about Jesus, interested Maybe you even believe in him already, but something's holding you back from following him 100%. I want you to know how much God loves you and how much you can trust him. And what if you're like Paul in this story, doing everything you can to follow Jesus, trying to help a Felix in your life come to the point where he or she can give themselves over to God? If that's you, and, and that's, that's where I see myself, too. Then let's follow the example of Paul, because he did so well. Paul never gave up on Felix. He met with him frequently to talk about Jesus, even though he probably knew Felix mostly wanted a bribe. But you know, any opportunity to share the good news of Jesus is a good opportunity. Granted, when Felix sent for Paul, it was the governor sending for the prisoner. Paul probably didn't have a choice but to come and talk with the governor about whatever he wanted to talk about. Fair enough. Even so, it's hard to imagine that Paul was not praying in between those sessions with Felix for another chance to try to persuade Felix to follow Jesus. As far as we can see, Paul never took Felix's corruption as governor personally. I'm sure it hurt being left in prison for two years when Paul had done nothing wrong and Felix probably knew Paul had done nothing wrong. 
And Paul was the victim of Felix's corruption. But knowing Paul's character, I imagine he was far more concerned about Felix's relationship with God than he was about his own freedom. So don't give up on the person that God is calling you to help come to Jesus. You may be their only chance at eternal life. There's a lot of pressure there. And that should call us to prayer, right? To pray and ask God to help us. You might be, for that one person in your life, like Felix, like Paul was for Felix, the one person God has sent to speak to them. And when they hurt you with their sin, because they will, because sin just, it hurts the people who commit it, it hurts the people around them, sometimes it hurts people far away. When they sin against you and it hurts and it might hurt a lot, don't take their sin against you too personally. But remember that the main issue is that this person really, really, really needs God. That realization will help you to keep on loving them, even when they hurt you, and you will not give up. It may just be that God sent Paul to Governor Felix on purpose to give him a chance at eternal life. It may just be that God is sending you and me to share with someone the good news of Jesus. Let's do our part faithfully, prayerfully, and maybe, just maybe, they'll respond. May God bless you. Let's pray together. God, our Father, as you sent someone to each of us, a parent, a friend, a co-worker, to... Um, represent in our lives the gospel of Jesus and to speak to us the good news of Jesus. Lord, so also call us to do the same for others. As you saved Paul so that he would share the gospel with others, so also, Lord, save us that we may also share the gospel with others, that more and more people may come to know you, our creator, and have a good and right relationship with you in the hope of eternal life. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, if any way today we are hesitating to let you be fully Lord in our lives, we pray, Lord, that your love and your goodness would break down our resistance, that knowledge of the judgment would warn us so that we would take our relationship with you seriously. Help us, Lord, to grow in a knowledge of you. Help us, Lord, to open our hearts to you. Help us, Lord, in our relationships with the people we'll be around this week uh, to be able to speak to them whatever you want us to say. If their hearts are open to you, Lord, or if they're curious about you or if, if they, they want to talk about you, Lord, give us the words to say. We, we're not smart enough to know what to say in the moment. We pray that you would give us the right words to say. Bless us, dear God, that we may join with you in the good work of bringing other people to Jesus. Bless your church, dear God, that as a body we may be very effective in uh, being a light for you in our community. Bless our community, Lord. Uh, you, it's still struggling through this pandemic. Bless our state and our nation and the world. We pray that you would help us. You alone can help us, for you alone are God. Bless us today, dear God. We honor you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.